Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 16, Part 2 of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 16, Part 2 In the moment which elapsed before either of the two could calm their agitated brains to speech, Eustace became aware as never before of the truth of the well-known line, Peace, perfect peace, with loved ones far away. Eustace! Mrs. Hignett gasped, hand on heart. Eustace, there are men in the house! This fact was just the one which Eustace had been wondering how to break to her. "'I know,' he said uneasily. "'You know?' Mrs. Hignett stared. "'Did you hear them?' "'Hear them?' said Eustace, puzzled. "'The drawing-room window was left open, and there are two burglars in the hall.' "'Oh, I say, no. That's rather rotten,' said Eustace. "'I saw and heard them. Come with me and arrest them. But I can't. I've sprained my ankle.' sprained your ankle how very inconvenient when did you do that this morning how did it happen eustace hesitated i was jumping jumping but oh mrs hignett's sentence trailed off into a suppressed shriek as the door opened immediately following on eustace's accident jane hubbard had constituted herself his nurse it was she who had bound up his injured ankle in a manner which the doctor, on his arrival, had admitted himself unable to improve upon. She had sat with him through the long afternoon, and now, fearing lest a return of the pain might render him sleepless, she had come to bring him a selection of books to see him through the night. Jane Hubbard was a girl who, by nature and training, was well adapted to bear shocks. She accepted the advent of Mrs. Hignett without visible astonishment, though inwardly she was wondering who the visitor might be. "'Good evening,' she said placidly. Mrs. Hignett, having rallied from her moment of weakness, glared at the new arrival dumbly. She could not place Jane. She had the air of a nurse, and yet she wore no uniform. "'Who are you?' she asked stiffly. "'Who are you?' countered Jane. "'I,' said Mrs. Hignett portentously, "'am the owner of this house, and I should be glad to know what you are doing in it. I am Mrs. Horace Hignett.' A charming smile spread itself over Jane's finely cut face. "'I'm so glad to meet you,' she said. "'I've heard so much about you.' "'Indeed,' said Mrs. Hignett. "'And now I should like to hear a little about you.' "'I've read all your books,' said Jane. "'I think they're wonderful.' In spite of herself, in spite of a feeling that this young woman was straying from the point, Mrs. Hignett could not check a slight influx of amiability. She was an authoress who received a good deal of incense from admirers, but she could always do with a bit more. Besides, most of the incense came by mail. Living a quiet and retired life in the country, it was rarely that she got it handed to her face to face. She melted quite perceptibly. 
she did not cease to look like a basilisk, but she began to look like a basilisk who has had a good lunch. "'My favourite said Jane, who for a week had been sitting daily in a chair in the drawing-room, adjourning the table on which the authoress's complete works were assembled, is the spreading light. I do like the spreading light. It was written some years ago, said Mrs. Hignett, with something approaching cordiality, and I have since revised some of the views I state in it, but I still consider it quite a good textbook. Of course, I can see that what of tomorrow is more profound, said Jane. But I read the spreading light first, and of course that makes a difference. I can quite see that it would, agreed Mrs. Hignett. One's first step across the threshold of a new mind, one's first glimpse. Yes, it makes you feel like some watcher of the skies, said Mrs. Hignett, when a new planet swims into his ken, or like, yes, doesn't it, said Jane. Eustace, who had been listening to the conversation with every muscle tense, in much the same mental attitude as a peaceful citizen in a Wild West saloon, who holds himself in readiness to dive under a table directly the shooting begins, began to relax. What he had shrinkingly anticipated would be the biggest thing since the Dempsey-Carpentier fight seemed to be turning into a pleasant social and literary evening, not unlike what he imagined a meeting of old Vassar alumni must be. For the first time since his mother had come into the room, he indulged in the luxury of a deep breath. "'But what are you doing here?' asked Mrs. Hignett, returning almost reluctantly to the main issue. Eustace perceived that he had breathed too soon. In an unobtrusive way he subsided into the bed, and softly pulled the sheets over his head, following the excellent tactics of the great Duke of Wellington in his peninsular campaign. "'When in doubt,' the Duke used to say, "'retire and dig yourself in.' "'I'm nursing, dear Eustace,' said Jane. Mrs. Hignett quivered, and cast an eye on the lump in the bedclothes which represented dear Eustace. A cold fear had come upon her. "'Dear Eustace,' she repeated mechanically. "'We're engaged,' said Jane. "'We got engaged this morning, and that's how he sprained his ankle. When I accepted him, he tried to jump a holly-bush.' "'Engaged, Eustace? Is this true?' "'Yes,' said a muffled voice from the interior of the bed. "'And poor Eustace is so worried,' continued Jane, "'about the house,' she went on quickly. "'He doesn't want to deprive you of it, because he knows what it means to you. So he's hoping—we're both hoping—that you will accept it as a present when we're married. We really shan't want it, you know. We're going to live in London. So you will take it, won't you, to please us?' We all of us, even the greatest of us, have our moments of weakness. Let us then not express any surprise at the sudden collapse of one of the world's greatest female thinkers. As the meaning of this speech smote on Mrs. Horace Hignett's understanding, she sank weeping into a chair. The ever-present fear that had haunted her had been exorcised. Windles was hers in perpetuity. The relief was too great. She sat in her chair and gulped, and Eustace, greatly encouraged, emerged slowly from the bedclothes like a worm after a thunderstorm. How long this poignant scene would have lasted one cannot say. It is a pity that it was cut short for I should have liked to dwell upon it. But, at this moment, from the regions downstairs, there suddenly burst upon the silent night such a whirlwind of sound as effectually dissipated the tense emotion in the room. Somebody had touched off the orchestrion in the drawing-room, and that willing instrument had begun again in the middle of a bar at the point where it had been switched off. Its wailing lament for the passing of summer filled the whole house. "'That's too bad!' 
said Jane, a little annoyed. At this time of night. It's the burglars, quavered Mrs. Hignett. In the stress of recent events, she had completely forgotten the existence of those enemies of society. They were dancing in the hall when I arrived, and now they're playing the orchestrion. Light-hearted chaps, said Eustace, admiring the sang-froid of the criminal world. Full of spirits. This won't do, said Jane, shaking her head. We can't have this sort of thing. I'll go and fetch my gun. No murder, you dear, panted Mrs. Hignett, clinging to her arm. Jane Hubbard laughed. Murder me, she said amusedly. I'd like to catch them at it. Mrs. Hignett stood staring at the door as Jane closed it safely behind her. Eustace, she said solemnly, that is a wonderful girl. Yes, she once killed a panther, or a puma, I forget which, with a hat-pin, said Eustace with enthusiasm. I could wish you no better wife, said Mrs. Hignett. She broke off with a sharp wail. Out in the passage, something like a battery of artillery had roared. The door opened, and Jane Hubbard appeared, slipping a fresh cartridge into the elephant gun. "'One of them was popping about outside here,' she announced. "'I took a shot at him, but I'm afraid I missed. The visibility was bad. At any rate, he went away.' In this last statement she was perfectly accurate. Bream Mortimer, who had been aroused by the orchestrion, and who had come to see what was the matter, had gone away at the rate of fifty miles an hour. He had been creeping down the passage when he found himself suddenly confronted by a dim figure which, without a word, had attempted to slay him with an enormous gun. The shot had whistled past his ears and gone singing down the corridor. This was enough for Bream. He had returned to his room in three strides, and was now under the bed. The burglars might take everything in the house and welcome, so that they did not molest his privacy. That was the way Bream looked at it, and very sensible of him too, I consider. "'We'd better go downstairs,' said Jane. "'Bring the candle. Not you, Eustace, darling. Don't you stir out of bed.' "'I won't,' said Eustace, obediently. End of chapter 16, part 2 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Chapter 16, Part 3 of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timbal Clee of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 16, Part 3. Of all the leisured pursuits, there are few less attractive to the thinking man than sitting in a dark cupboard waiting for a house party to go to bed and Sam, who had established himself in the one behind the piano, at a quarter to eight, soon began to feel as if he had been there for an eternity. He could dimly remember a previous existence in which he had not been sitting in his present position, but it seemed so long ago that it was shadowy and unreal to him. The ordeal of spending the evening in this retreat had not appeared formidable when he had contemplated it that afternoon in the lane, but now that he was actually undergoing it, it was extraordinary how many disadvantages it had. Cupboards as a class are badly ventilated, and this one seemed to contain no air at all, and the warmth of the night, combined with the cupboard's natural stuffiness, had soon begun to reduce Sam to a condition of pulp. He seemed to himself to be sagging like an ice-cream in front of a fire. The darkness, too, weighed in upon him. He was abominably thirsty. Also he wanted to smoke. In addition to this, the small of his back tickled, and he more than suspected the cupboard of harbouring mice. Not once, 
nor twice, but many hundred times he wished that the ingenious Webster had thought of something simpler. His was a position which would just have suited one of those Indian mystics who sit perfectly still for twenty years contemplating the infinite, but it reduced Sam to an almost imbecile state of boredom. He tried counting sheep. He tried going over his past life in his mind, from the earliest moment he could recollect, and thought he had never encountered a duller series of episodes. He found a temporary solace by playing a succession of mental golf games over all the courses he could remember, and he was just teeing up for the sixteenth at Muirfield, after playing Hoylake, St. Andrews, Westwood Ho, Hanger Hill, Mid-Surrey, Walton Heath, Garden City, and the Engineers Club at Roslyn, L.I., when the light ceased to shine through the crack under the door, and he awoke with a sense of dull incredulity to the realization that the occupants of the drawing-room had called it a day, and that his vigil was over. But was it? Once more alert, Sam became cautious. True, the light seemed to be off, but did that mean anything in a country house where people had the habit of going and strolling about the garden at all hours? Probably they were still popping about all over the place. At any rate, it was not worth risking coming out of his lair. He remembered that Webster had promised to come and knock an all-clear signal on the door. It would be safer to wait for that. But the moments went by, and there was no knock. Sam began to grow impatient. The last few minutes of waiting in the cupboard are always the hardest. Time seemed to stretch out again interminably. Once he thought he heard footsteps, but that led to nothing. Eventually, having strained his ears and finding everything still, he decided to take a chance. He fished in his pocket for the key, cautiously unlocked the door, opened it by slow inches, and peered out. The room was in blackness, the house was still, all was well. With the feeling of a life-prisoner emerging from the Bastille, he began to crawl stiffly forward, and it was just then that the first of the disturbing events occurred which were to make this night memorable to him. Something like a rattlesnake suddenly went off with a whirr, and his head, jerking up, collided with the piano. It was only the cuckoo clock which now, having cleared its throat, as was its custom before striking, proceeded to cook eleven times in rapid succession, before subsiding with another rattle. But to Sam it sounded like the end of the world. He sat in the darkness, massaging his bruised skull. His hours of imprisonment in the cupboard had had a bad effect on his nervous system, and he vacillated between tears of weakness and a militant desire to get at the cuckoo clock with a hatchet. He felt that it had done it on purpose, and was now chuckling to itself in fancied security. For quite a minute he raged silently, and any cuckoo-clock which had strayed within his reach would have had a bad time of it. Then his attention was diverted. So concentrated was Sam on his private vendetta with the clock, that no ordinary happening would have had the power to distract him. What occurred now was by no means ordinary and it distracted him like an electric shock. As he sat on the floor, passing a tender hand over the egg-shaped bump which had already begun to manifest itself beneath his hair, something cold and wet touched his face, and paralyzed him so completely both physically and mentally that he did not move a muscle, but just congealed where he sat into a solid block 
of ice. He felt, vaguely, that this was the end. His heart stopped beating, and he simply could not imagine it ever starting again. And if your heart refuses to beat, what hope is there for you? At this moment something heavy and solid struck him squarely in the chest, rolling him over. Something gurgled asthmatically in the darkness. Something began to lick his eyes, ears, and chin in a sort of ecstasy. And, clutching out, he found his arms full of totally unexpected bulldog. "'Get out!' whispered Sam tersely, recovering his faculties with a jerk. "'Go away!' Smith took the opportunity of his lips having opened to lick the roof of his mouth. Smith's attitude in the matter was that Providence, in its all-seeing wisdom, had sent him a human being at a moment when he had reluctantly been compelled to reconcile himself with a total absence of such indispensable adjuncts of a good time, and that now the revels might commence. He had just trotted downstairs in a rather disconsolate frame of mind, after waiting with no result in front of Webster's bedroom door, and it was a real treat to him to meet a man, especially one seated in such a jolly and sociable manner on the floor. He welcomed Sam like a long-lost friend. Between Smith and the humans who provided him with dog biscuits and occasionally with sweet cakes, there had always existed a state of misunderstanding which no words could remove. The position of the humans was quite clear. They had elected Smith to his present position on a straight watchdog ticket. They expected him to be one of those dogs who rouse the house and save the spoons. They looked to him to pin burglars by the leg and hold on till the police arrived. Smith simply could not grasp such an attitude of mind. He regarded Windles not as a private house, but as a social club, and was utterly unable to see any difference between the human beings he knew and the strangers who dropped in for a late chat after the place was locked up. He had no intention of biting Sam. The idea never entered his head. At the present moment what he felt about Sam was that he was one of the best fellows he had ever met, and that he loved him like a brother. Sam, in his unnerved state, could not bring himself to share these amiable sentiments. He was thinking bitterly that Webster might have had the intelligence to warn him of bulldogs on the premises. It was just the sort of woollen-headed thing fellows did, forgetting facts like that. He scrambled stiffly to his feet, and tried to pierce the darkness that hemmed him in. He ignored Smith, who snuffled sportively about his ankles, and made for the slightly less black oblong which he took to be the door, leading into the hall. He moved warily but not warily enough to prevent him cannoning into and almost upsetting a small table with a vase on it. The table rocked, and the vase jumped, and the first bit of luck that had come to Sam that night was when he reached out at a venture, and caught it just as it was about to bound onto the carpet. He stood there, shaking. The narrowness of the escape turned him cold. If he had been an instant later there would have been a crash loud enough to wake a dozen sleeping houses. This little thing could not go on. He must have light. It might be a risk. There might be a chance of somebody upstairs seeing it and coming down to investigate. But it was a risk that must be taken. He declined to go on stumbling about in this darkness any longer. He groped his way with infinite care to the door, on the wall adjoining which, he presumed, the electric light switch would be. It was nearly ten years since he had last been inside Windles, and it never occurred to him that in this progressive age even a woman like his Aunt Adeline, of whom he could believe almost anything, would still be using candles and oil lamps as a means of illumination. His only doubt was whether the switch was, where it was in most houses, near the door. It is odd to reflect that, as his searching fingers touched the knob, 
a delicious feeling of relief came to Samuel Marlowe. This misguided young man actually felt at that moment that his troubles were over. He positively smiled as he placed a thumb on the knob and shoved. He shoved strongly and sharply, and instantaneously there leaped at him out of the darkness a blare of music which appeared to his disordered mind quite solid. It seemed to wrap itself round him. It was all over the place. In a single instant the world had become one vast bellow of Tosti's good-bye. How long he stood there, frozen, he did not know. Nor can one say how long he would have stood there, had nothing further come to invite his notice elsewhere. But suddenly, drowning in the impromptu concert, there came from somewhere upstairs the roar of a gun, and when he heard that Sam's rigid limbs relaxed and a violent activity descended upon him. He bounded out into the hall, looking to the right and to the left for a hiding-place. One of the suits of armour which had been familiar to him in his boyhood loomed up in front of him, and with the sight came the recollection of how, when a mere child on his first visit to Windles, playing hide-and-seek with his cousin Eustace, he had concealed himself inside this very suit, and had not only baffled Eustace through a long summer evening, but had wound up almost scaring him into a decline by booing at him through the visor of the helmet. Happy days! Happy days! He leaped at the suit of armour. The helmet was a tight fit, but he managed to get his head into it at last, and the body of the thing was quite roomy. Thank heaven! said Sam. He was not comfortable, but comfort just then was not his primary need. Smith, the bulldog, well satisfied with the way things had happened, sat down, wheezing slightly, to await developments. End of chapter 16, part 3 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Chapter 16, Part 4 Of Three Men and a Maid This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 16, Part 4 He had not long to wait. In a few minutes the hall had filled up nicely. There was Mr. Mortimer in his shirt-sleeves, Mr. Bennet in his pyjamas and a dressing-gown, Mrs. Hignett in a travelling costume, Jane Hubbard with her elephant-gun, and Billy in a dinner-dress. Smith welcomed them all impartially. Somebody lit a lamp, and Mrs. Hignett stared speechlessly at the mob. "'Mr. Bennet! Mr. Mortimer! Mrs. Hignett, what are you doing here?' Mrs. Hignett drew herself up stiffly. "'What an odd question, Mr. Mortimer! I am in my own house!' "'But you rented it to me for the summer. At least your son did.' "'Eustace let you windles for the summer?' said Mrs. Hignett incredulously. Jane Hubbard returned from the drawing-room where she had been switching off the orchestrion. "'Let us talk all that over cosily to-morrow,' she said. "'The point now is that there are burglars in the house.' "'Burglars?' cried Mr. Bennet, aghast. I thought it was you playing that infernal instrument, Mortimer. What on earth would I play it for at this time of night? said Mr. Mortimer irritably. It appeared only too evident that the two old friends were again on the verge of one of their distressing fallings out. But Jane Hubbard intervened once more. This practical-minded girl disliked the introducing of side issues into the conversation. She was there to talk about burglars, 
and she intended to do so. For goodness sake, stop it, she said, almost petulantly for one usually so superior to emotion. There'll be lots of time for quarrelling tomorrow. Just now we've got to catch these— I'm not quarrelling, said Mr. Bennet. Yes, you are, said Mr. Mortimer. I'm not. You are. Don't argue. I'm not arguing. You are. I'm not. Jane Hubbard had practically every noble quality which a woman can possess, with the exception of patience. A patient woman would have stood by, shrinking from interrupting the dialogue. Jane Hubbard's robuster course was to raise the elephant gun, point it at the front door, and pull the trigger. I thought that would stop you, she said complacently, as the echoes died away and Mr. Bennet had finished leaping into the air. She inserted a fresh cartridge and sloped arms. Now, the question is, you made me bite my tongue, said Mr. Bennet, deeply aggrieved. Serves you right, said Jane placidly. Now, the question is, have the fellows got away, or are they hiding somewhere in the house? I think they're still in the house. The police, exclaimed Mr. Bennet, forgetting his lacerated tongue and his other grievances. We must summon the police. Obviously, said Mrs. Hignett, withdrawing her fascinated gaze from the ragged hole in the front door, the cost of repairing which she had been mentally assessing. We must send for the police at once. We don't really need them, you know, said Jane. If you'll all go to bed, and leave me to potter round with my gun, and blow the whole house to pieces, said Mrs. Hignett tartly. She had begun to revise her original estimate of this girl. To her a windles was sacred, and any one who went about shooting holes in it forfeited her esteem. "'Shall I go for the police?' said Billy. "'I could bring them back in ten minutes in the car.' "'Certainly not,' said Mr. Bennet. "'My daughter gadding about all over the countryside in an automobile at this time of night.' "'If you think I ought not to go alone, I could take Bream.' "'Where is Bream?' said Mr. Mortimer. The odd fact that Bream was not among those present suddenly presented itself to the company. "'Where can he be?' said Billy. Jane Hubbard laughed the wholesome indulgent laugh of one who is broad-minded enough to see the humour of the situation, even when the joke is at her expense. "'What a silly girl I am!' she said. "'I do believe that was Bream I shot at upstairs. How foolish of me, uh, making a mistake like that!' "'You shot my only son!' it cried Mr. Mortimer. "'I shot at him,' said Jane. "'My belief is that I missed him. Though how I came to do it beats me. I don't suppose I've missed a sitter like that since I was a child in the nursery.' "'Of course,' she proceeded, looking on the reasonable side. "'The visibility wasn't good, and I fired from the hip. But it's no use saying I oughtn't at least to have winged him, because I ought.' She shook her head with a touch of self-reproach. "'I shall be chafed about this if it comes out,' she said regretfully. "'The poor boy must be in his room,' said Mr. Mortimer. "'Under the bed, if you ask me,' said Jane, blowing on the barrel of her gun and polishing it with the side of her hand. "'He's all right. Leave him alone, and the housemaid will sweep him up in the morning.' "'Oh, he can't be!' cried Billy, revolted. A girl of high spirit, it seemed to her repellent, that the man she was engaged to marry should be displaying such a craven spirit. At that moment she despised and hated Bream Mortimer. I think she was wrong, mind you. It's not my place to criticise the little group of people whose simple annals I am relating. My position is merely that of a reporter. But personally, I think highly of Bream's sturdy common sense. 
if somebody loosed off an elephant gun at me in a dark corridor i would climb on to the roof and pull it up after me still rightly or wrongly that was how billy felt and it flashed across her mind that samuel marlowe scoundrel though he was would not have behaved like this and for a moment a certain wistfulness added itself to the varied emotions then engaging her mind i'll go and look if you like said jane agreeably you amuse yourself somehow till i come back she ran easily up the stairs three at a time and mr mortimer turned to mr bennett it's all very well your saying wilhelmina mustn't go but if she doesn't how can we get the police the house isn't on the phone and nobody else can drive the car that's true said mr bennett wavering i'm going said billy resolutely it occurred to her as it had occurred to so many women before her how helpless men are in a crisis the temporary withdrawal of jane hubbard had had the effect which the removal of a rudder has on a boat it's the only thing to do i shall be back in no time she stepped firmly to the coat rack and began to put on her motoring cloak and just then jane hubbard came downstairs shepherding before her a pale and glassy-eyed bream right under the bed she announced cheerfully making a noise like a piece of fluff in order to deceive burglars billy cast a scornful glance at her fiance absolutely unjustified in my opinion but nevertheless she cast it but it had no effect at all terror had stunned bream mortimer's perceptions his was what the doctors call a penumbral men mental condition he was in a sort of trance bream said billy i want you to come in the car with me to fetch the police all right said bream get your coat all right said bream and cap all right said bream he followed billy in a docile manner out through the front door and they made their way to the garage at the back of the house both silent the only difference between their respective silences was that billy's was thoughtful while bream's was just the silence of a man who has unhitched his brain and is getting along as well as he can without it in the hall they had left jane hubbard once more took command of affairs well that's something done she said scratching smith's broad back with the muzzle of her weapon something accomplished something done has earned a night's repose not that we're going to get it yet i think those fellows are hiding somewhere and we ought to search the house and rout them out it's such a pity smith isn't a bloodhound i like you personally smithy but you're about as much practical use in a situation like this as a cold in the head you're a good cake hound but as a watchdog you don't finish in the first ten the cake hound charmed at the compliment frisked about her feet like a young elephant the thing to do continued jane is to go through the ground floor rooms she paused to strike a match against the suit of armour nearest to her a proceeding which elicited a sharp cry of protest from mrs hignett and lit a cigarette i'll go first as i've got a gun she blew a cloud of smoke i shall want somebody with me to carry a light and choo what said jane i didn't speak said mr mortimer who am i to speak he went on bitterly who am i that it should be supposed that i have anything sensible to suggest somebody spoke said jane i achoo do you feel a draught mr bennett cried jane sharply wheeling round on him there is a draught began mr bennett well finish sneezing and i'll go on i didn't sneeze somebody sneezed 
it seemed to come from just behind you said mrs hignett nervously it couldn't have come from just behind me said jane because there isn't anything behind me from which it could have she stopped suddenly in her eyes the light of understanding on her face the set expression which was wont to come on it on the eve of action oh she said in a different voice a voice which was cold and tense and sinister oh i see she raised her gun and placed a muscular forefinger on the trigger come out of that she said come out of that suit of armour and let's have a look at you i can explain everything said a muffled voice through the visor of the helmet i can achoo the smoke of the cigarette tickled sam's nostrils again and he suspended his remarks i shall count three said jane hubbard one two i'm coming i'm coming said sam petulantly you'd better said jane i can't get this dashed helmet off if you don't come quick i'll blow it off sam stepped out into the hall a picturesque figure which combined the costumes of two widely separated centuries modern as far as the neck he slipped back at that point to the middle ages hands up commanded jane hubbard my hands are up retorted sam querulously as he wrenched at his unbecoming headwear never mind trying to raise your hat said jane if you've lost the combination we'll dispense with the formalities what we're anxious to hear is what you're doing in the house at this time of night and who your pals are come along my lad make a clean breast of it and perhaps you'll get off easier are you a gang do i look like a gang if you ask me what you look like my name is marlowe samuel marlowe alias what alias nothing i say my name is samuel marlowe an explosive roar burst from mr bennett the scoundrel i know him i forbade him the house and-and by what right did you forbid people my house mr bennett said mrs hignett with acerbity i've rented the house mortimer and i rented it from your son yes 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 said jane hubbard never mind about that so you know this fellow do you i don't know him you said you did i refuse to know him went on mr bennett i won't know him i decline to have anything to do with him but you identify him if he says he's samuel marlowe assented mr bennett grudgingly i suppose he is i can't imagine anybody saying he was samuel marlowe if he didn't know it could be proved against him are you my nephew samuel said mrs hignett yes said sam well what are you doing in my house it's my house said mr bennett for the summer henry mortimer's and mine isn't that right henry dead right said mr mortimer there said mr bennett you hear and when henry mortimer says a thing it's so there's nobody's word i'd take before henry mortimer's when rufus bennett makes an assertion said mr mortimer highly flattered by these kind words you can bank on it rufus bennett's word is his bond rufus bennett is a white man the two old friends clasped hands with a good deal of feeling i am not disputing mr bennett's claim to belong to the caucasian race said mrs hignett i merely maintain that this house is yes 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 interrupted jane you can thresh all that out some other time the point is if this fellow is your nephew i don't see what we can do we'll have to let him go i came to this house said sam 
raising his visor to facilitate speech, to make a social call. "'At this hour of the night?' snapped Mrs. Hignett. "'You always were an inconsiderate boy, Samuel.' "'I came to inquire after poor Eustace's ankle. I've only just heard that the poor chap was ill.' "'He's getting along quite well,' said Jane, melting. "'If I'd known you were so fond of Eustace—' "'He's all right, is he?' said Sam. "'Well, not quite all right, but he's going on very nicely.' "'Fine. Eustace and I are engaged, you know.' "'No, really? Splendid. I can't see you very distinctly. How those Johnnies in the old days ever contrived to put up a scrap with things like this on their heads beats me. But you sound a good sort. I hope you'll be very happy.' "'Thank you ever so much, Mr. Marlowe. I'm sure we shall. Eustace is one of the best. How nice of you to say so.' all this interrupted mrs hignett who had been a chafing auditor of this exchange of courtesies is beside the point why did you dance in the hall samuel and play the orchestrion yes said mr bennett reminded of his grievance waking people up scaring us all to death complained mr mortimer i remember you as a boy samuel said mrs hignett lamentably lacking in consideration for others and concentrated only on your selfish pleasures you seem to have altered very little don't ballyrag the poor man said jane hubbard be human lend him a can opener i shall do nothing of the sort said mrs hignett i never liked him and i dislike him now he's got himself into this trouble through his own wrong-headedness it's not his fault his head's the wrong size said jane he must get himself out as best he can said mrs hignett very well said sam with bitter dignity then i will not trespass further on your hospitality aunt adeline i have no doubt the local blacksmith will be able to get this damned thing off me i shall go to him now i will let you have the helmet back by parcel post at the earliest possible opportunity good night he walked coldly to the front door and there are people he remarked sardonically who say that blood is thicker than water I bet they never had any aunts. End of chapter sixteen, part four. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible dot org. Chapter sixteen, part five of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox dot org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse, Chapter Sixteen, Part Five. Billy, meanwhile, with Bream trotting docilely at her heels, had reached the garage and started the car. Like all cars which have been spending a considerable time in secluded inaction, it did not start readily. At each application of Billy's foot on the self-starter, it emitted a tinny and reproachful sound, then seemed to go to sleep again. Eventually, however, the engines began to revolve, and the machine moved reluctantly out into the drive. "'The battery must be run down,' said Billy. "'All right,' said Bream. Billy cast a glance of contempt at him out of the corner of her eyes. She hardly knew why she had spoken to him, except that, as all automobilists are aware, the impulse to say rude things about their battery is almost irresistible. To an automobilist, the art of conversation consists in rapping out scathing remarks either about the battery or the oiling system billy switched on the headlights and turned the car down the dark drive she was feeling thoroughly upset her idealistic nature had received a painful shock on the discovery of the yellow streak in bream 
to call it a yellow streak was to understate the facts it was a great belt of saffron encircling his whole soul that she wilhelmina bennett who had gone through the world seeking a galahad should finish off her career as the wife of a man who hid under beds simply because people shot at him with elephant guns was abhorrent to her why samuel marlowe would have perished rather than do such a thing you might say what you liked about samuel marlowe and of course his habit of playing practical jokes put him beyond the pale but nobody could question his courage look at the way he had dived overboard that time in the harbour at new york billy found herself thinking hard about samuel marlowe there are only a few makes of car in which you can think hard about anything except the actual driving without stalling the engines and mr bennett's twin six complex was not one of them it stopped as if it had been waiting for the signal the noise of the engine died away the wheels ceased to revolve the automobile did everything except lie down it was a particularly pig-headed car and right from the start it had been unable to see the sense in this midnight expedition it seemed now to have the idea that if it just lay low and did nothing presently it would be taken back to its cosy garage billy trod on the self-starter nothing happened you'll have to get down and crank her she said curtly all right said bream well go on said billy impatiently eh get out and crank her bream emerged for an instant from his trance all right he said the art of cranking a car is one that is not given to all men some of our greatest and wisest stand helpless before the task it is a job towards the consummation of which a noble soul and a fine brain help not at all a man may have all the other gifts and yet be unable to accomplish a task which the fellow at the garage does with one quiet quick flick of the wrist without even bothering to remove his chewing gum this being so it was not only unkind but foolish of billy to grow impatient as bream's repeated efforts failed of their object it was wrong of her to click her tongue and certainly she ought not to have told bream that he was not fit to churn butter but women are an emotional sex and must be forgiven much in moments of mental stress give it a good sharp twist she said all right said bream here let me do it cried billy she jumped down and snatched the thingamy from his hand with bent brows and set teeth she wrenched it round the engine gave a faint protesting mutter like a dog that has been disturbed in its sleep and was still once more may i help it was not bream who spoke but a strange voice a sepulchral voice the sort of voice someone would have used in one of edgar allan poe's cheerful little tales if he had been buried alive and were speaking from the family vault coming suddenly out of the night it affected bream painfully he uttered a sharp exclamation and gave a bound which if he had been a russian dancer would probably have caused the management to raise his salary he was in no frame of mind to bear up under sudden sepulchral voices billy on the other hand was pleased the high-spirited girl was just beginning to fear that she was unequal to the task which she had chided bream for being unable to perform and this was mortifying her oh would you mind thank you so much the self-start has gone wrong into the glare of the headlights there stepped a strange figure strange that is to say in these tame modern times in the middle ages he would have excited no comment at all passers-by would simply have said to themselves ah another of those knights off after the dragons and would have gone their way with a civil greeting but in the present age it is always somewhat startling to see a helmeted head 
pop up in front of your automobile. At any rate, it startled Bream. I'll go further. It gave Bream the shock of a lifetime. He had had shocks already that night, but none to be compared with this. Or perhaps it was that this shock, coming on top of those shocks, affected him more disastrously than it would have done if it had been the first of the series instead of the last. One may express the thing briefly by saying that, as far as Bream was concerned, Sam's unconventional appearance put the lid on it. He did not hesitate. He did not pause to make comments or ask questions. With a single cat-like screech, which took years off the lives of the abruptly wakened birds roosting in the neighbouring trees, he dashed away towards the house, and, reaching his room, locked the door and pushed the bed, the chest of drawers, two chairs, the towel-stand, and three pairs of boots against it. Only then did he feel comparatively safe. Out on the drive, Billy was staring at the man in armour, who had now, with a masterful wrench, which informed the car right away that he would stand no nonsense, set the engine going again. "'Why, why,' she stammered, "'why are you wearing that thing on your head?' "'Because I can't get it off.' Hollow as the voice was, Billy recognised it. S "'Mr. Marlowe!' she exclaimed. "'Get in,' said Sam. He seated himself at the steering wheel. "'Where can I take you?' "'Go away,' said Billy. "'Get in.' "'I don't want to talk to you.' "'I don't want to talk to you. Get in.' "'I won't.' Sam bent over the side of the car, put his hands under her arms, lifted her like a kitten, and deposited her on the seat beside him. Then, throwing in the clutch, he drove at an ever-increasing speed down the drive and out into the silent road. Strange creatures of the night came and went in the glow of the headlights. End of chapter 16, part 5. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Chapter 16, part 6 of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse, Chapter Sixteen, Part Six. Put me down," said Billy. "You'd get hurt if I did, travelling at this pace. What are you going to do? Drive about till you promise to marry me. You'll have to drive a long time." "Righto," said Sam. The car took a corner and purred down a lane. Billy reached out a hand and grabbed at the steering wheel. "Of course, if you want to smash up in a ditch," said Sam writing the car with a wrench. "'You're a brute,' said Billy. "'Cape and stuff,' explained Sam. "'I ought to have tried this before.' "'I don't know what you expect to gain by this.' "'That's all right,' said Sam. "'I know what I'm about.' "'I'm glad to hear it.' "'I thought you would be. I'm not going to talk to you.' "'All right. Lean back and doze off. We have the whole night before us.' "'What do you mean?' cried Billy, sitting up with a jerk. "'Have you ever been to Scotland?' What do you mean? I thought we might push up there. We've got to go somewhere. And, oddly enough, I've never been to Scotland. Billy regarded him blankly. Are you crazy? I'm crazy about you. If you knew what I've gone through tonight for your sake, you'd be more sympathetic. I love you, said Sam, swerving to avoid a rabbit. And what's more, you know it. I don't care. You will, said Sam confidently. How about North Wales? 
I've heard people speak well of North Wales. Shall we head for North Wales? I'm engaged to Bream Mortimer. Oh, no, that's all off, Sam assured her. It's not. Right off, said Sam firmly. You could never bring yourself to marry a man who dashed away like that and deserted you in your hour of need. Why, for all he knew, I might have tried to murder you. And he ran away? No, no, we'll eliminate Bream Mortimer once and for all. He won't do. This was so exactly what Billy was feeling herself, that she could not bring herself to dispute it. Anyway, I hate you, she said, giving the conversation another turn. Why, in the name of goodness, why? How dared you make a fool of me in your father's office that morning? It was a sudden inspiration. I had to do something to make you think well of me, and I thought it might meet the case if I saved you from a lunatic with a pistol. It wasn't my fault you found out. I shall never forgive you. Why not Cornwall? said Sam. The Riviera of England. Let's go to Cornwall. I beg your pardon, what were you saying? I said I should never forgive you, and I won't. Well, I hope you're fond of motoring, said Sam, because we're going on till you do. Very well. Go on, then. I intend to. Of course, it's all right now while it's dark. But have you considered what is going to happen when the sun gets up? We shall have a sort of triumphal procession. How the small boys will laugh when they see a man in a helmet go by in a car. I shan't notice them myself, because it's a little difficult to notice anything from inside this thing. But I'm afraid it will be rather unpleasant for you. I know what we'll do. We'll go to London and drive up and down Piccadilly. That will be fun." There was a long silence. "'Is my helmet on straight?' said Sam. Billy made no reply. She was looking before her down the hedge-bordered road. Always a girl of sudden impulse, she had just made a curious discovery. To wit, that she was enjoying herself. There was something so novel and exhilarating about this midnight ride that imperceptibly her dismay and resentment had ebbed away. She found herself struggling with a desire to laugh. Lochinvar, said Sam, suddenly. That's the name of the chap I've been trying to think of. Did you ever read about Lochinvar? Young Lochinvar, the poet calls him rather familiarly. He did just what I'm doing now, and everybody thought very highly of him. I suppose in those days a helmet was just an ordinary part of what the well-dressed man should wear. Odd how fashions change. Till now, dignity and wrath had combined to keep Billy from making any inquiries into a matter which had excited in her a quite painful curiosity. In her new mood she resisted the impulse no longer. Why are you wearing that thing? I told you, purely and simply because I can't get it off. You don't suppose I'm trying to set a new style in gents' headwear, do you? But why did you ever put it on? Well, it was this way. After I came out of the cupboard in the drawing-room— What? Didn't I tell you about that? Oh, yes. I was sitting in the cupboard in the drawing-room from dinner-time onwards. After that I came out and started cannoning about Aunt Adeline's china, so I thought I'd better switch the light on. Unfortunately, I switched on some sort of musical instrument instead, and then somebody started shooting. So, what with one thing and another, I thought it would be best to hide somewhere. I hid in one of the suits of armour in the hall. Were you inside there all the time we were— Yes, I mean to say, that was funny about Bream, wasn't it? Getting under the bed, I mean. Don't let's talk about Bream. That's the right spirit. I'd like to see it. All right, we won't. Let's get back to the main issue. Will you marry me? Why did you come to the house at all? To see you. 
to see me at that time of the night well perhaps not actually to see you sam was a little perplexed for a moment something told him that it would be injudicious to reveal his true motive and thereby risk disturbing the harmony which he felt had begun to exist between them to be near you to be in the same house with you he went on vehemently feeling that he'd struck the right note you don't know the anguish i went through after i read that letter of yours i was mad i was well to return to the point will you marry me billy sat looking straight before her the car now on the main road moved smoothly on will you marry me billy rested her hand on her chin and searched the darkness with thoughtful eyes will you marry me the car raced on will you marry me said sam will you marry me will you marry me oh don't talk like a parrot cried billy it reminds me of bream but will you yes said billy sam brought the car to a standstill with a jerk probably very bad for the tyres did you say yes yes darling said sam leaning towards her oh curse this helmet why well i rather wanted to kiss you and it hampers me let me try and get it off bend down ouch it's coming there how helpless men are we need a woman's tender care said sam depositing the helmet on the floor of the car and rubbing his smarting ears billy sam you angel you're rather a darling after all said billy but you want keeping in order she added severely you will do that when we're married when we're married he repeated luxuriously how splendid it sounds the only trouble is said billy father won't hear of it no he won't not till it's all over said sam he started the car again what are you going to do said billy where are you going to london said sam it may be news to you but the old lawyer like myself knows that by going to doctors commons or the court of arches or somewhere or by routing the archbishop of canterbury out of bed or something you can get a special license and be married almost before you know where you are my scheme roughly is to dig this special license out of whoever keeps such things have a bit of breakfast and then get married at our leisure before lunch at the registrar's oh not a registrar's said billy no i should hate a registrar's very well angel just as you say we'll go to a church there are millions of churches in london i've seen them all over the place he mused for a moment yes you're quite right he said a church is the thing it'll please webster webster yes he's rather keen on the church bells never having rung out so blithe a peal before and we must consider webster's feelings after all he brought us together webster how oh i'll tell you all about that some other time said sam just for the moment i want to sit quite still and think are you comfortable fine then off we go the birds in the trees fringing the road stirred and twittered grumpily as the noise of the engine disturbed their slumbers but if they had known it they were in luck at any rate the worst had not befallen them for sam was too happy to sing the end end of three men and a maid by p g woodhouse read by tim bulkley of bigbible.org everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.